Hello and welcome to episode three of the Marine Corps Association podcast, Scuttlebutt. I'm Nick. I'm here with Vic. Hello. And today we have a special introduction, a new member of the podcast, William Truding. William, how you doing? I'm all right. Thank you very much. That's good to hear. We're going to introduce you a little bit here. Uh, William, uh, as Vic can attest, has written a thesis about Gazette Magazine. There were some uh, quotations around that thesis. Uh, didn't have to defend it, but... Might as well have been a thesis. Okay. You needed it to graduate. Exactly. <laughs> we'll call it a thesis. An, undefe- an yeah. undefended thesis. How to justify paying so for hey, grad So you're undefeated then. You didn't even have to defend it. Exactly. It's a perfect defense. Sun Tzu. One that you don't have to. Yeah. You picked the terrain <laughs> at optimal. You didn't even need an engagement to win. Good job. Well played, sir. Uh, so in uh, lieu of our normal bit of scuttlebutt, we're going to dig into Williams... Uh, street cred. Yeah, so one of the ideas uh, is for our listeners to know is we're going to be introducing some new segments, um, and William is the uh, one of the assistant editors of the Gazette, uh, extremely knowledgeable. He's a historian, and we just thought this would be great as we uh, begin to um, expand the show a little bit and bring in some new segments to bring William on board with the uh, podcast, not just as in his editorial duties, and um, help us uh, explore all of the wonderful things that the Marine Corps Association uh, is a part of. Um, so, hey, well, thanks for being here, man. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate having me. Um, so we talked a little bit already about uh, who you are, but if you could, in your own words, sort of give us a little of your background, uh, your connections to the Marine Corps outside of the Gazette, how you came to be a part of the Gazette team, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, perfect. So, um, but I had the privilege of both of my parents being Marines. So, if, you, if you uh, if you want to be uh, indoctrinated in the Marine Corps, greater family, that's pretty much the easiest way be to be born to a couple Marines. Exactly. <laughs> so I was uh, born a couple Marines. We moved around a little bit. Uh, grew up mostly in uh, Northern Virginia. So on top of that, if your parents are Marines and one of them is a military historian as well, it's the perfect area to really uh, be a part of that. I got my undergraduate degree at Christopher Newport University. Uh, and then I continued on, got my master's in history with a focus on American military history at George, uh, George Mason. And for my quote-unquote thesis, I wrote essentially about how Marines in the Marine Corps Gazette responded to uh, Bill Lind coming in during the uh, maneuver warfare uh, discussion era, the 70s and 80s. And that was great, especially because... It was during when COVID started, and for all my primary sources, I had to go to the library. I just raided the uh, Marine Corps Gazette's archives and had a pile of books on my kitchen table for about you know six months or so. Your wife was so stoked on that, I bet. Yeah, uh, she got to work in on the uh, the living room, the, in the <laughs> living room during that that whole uh, fun era. But yeah, it was. Um, I mean. Wonderful and insightful. Got to uh, dig into some of the uh, Marine Corps Gazette's history. Uh, I started working at the Gazette actually uh, three years ago last week. So it's it's been uh, it's been a fun time. It's definitely helped a lot getting to know the in and outs and specifics about Marine Corps, Marine Corps doctrine, what's going on, and really actually <laughs> understanding completely what our, our our articles are saying aside from maybe like the ones that are super in-depth and, and technical heavy. But uh, it's, it's, been, it's been a great ride so far. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, uh, it's, I've had uh, really, you know, my few months here, I've enjoyed working with you. And so, yeah, I, I feel the same. Like it's been good to sort of 
be a part of the academic discussion of what the Marine Corps is about, not just sort of relying on, you know, the major news networks and then just empirical evidence and stuff. So um, really uh, enjoy working with you. Um, so let's get into it then. Why don't we talk about uh, your thesis, He's Right But Incomplete. Yeah, so essentially what I wanted to do was um... – because when you're writing your, your quote-unquote your thesis, you have to figure out where your um, writing fits in with the greater discussion. So like a lot of when talking about the uh, Marine Corps' maneuver warfare um, moment, as, as a lot of people call it, is I need to figure out, okay, what are people saying, what, especially for my relevancy, what have they not said? So a lot of focus is obviously on like the, the big players of the movement. Uh, like John Boyd, Bill Lynn, et cetera. But I wanted to focus on the other side of it. Like, what are your average Marines saying uh, in response to this? How are they interacting? And for essentially how my, my thesis played out was, it's sort of like if it's a sports movie, uh, it starts off where <laughs> this guy movies. comes in, he's overweight, but he's really, he knows a lot about baseball, and all the baseball players are like, no, who are you? What are you doing? You, this guy's obnoxious. He's a rude coach. He's yelling at him. The co- players don't like him. But then over time... You know, they, 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 they get together, they, they, they realize, okay, maybe he's an asshole, but uh, he has a lot of good points to say. And then over time, that relationship builds and it culminates with, you know, like the, the big win, which is in our case, uh, MCDP-1 or FMFF, Fleet Marine Force Manual 1, where it's like, you know, maneuver warfare is now the Marine Corps' doctrine. and uh, Just in time, too, right? Exactly. Um so the period you're talking about uh, in your uh, in your paper was uh, post Vietnam, correct? Yes. That's where it started. Exactly, because I mean, at that point, you could you could say the Marine Corps, like most services at that point, were kind of in a rut. You know, they're coming off the Vietnam era, don't really know where we fit, don't really to, to an do. all volunteer force. Exactly. Yeah. So it was a it was a, a, a good era, which you know, to to reevaluate and and redefine what the Marine Corps was at that point, and it's a, p- a perfect p- time for an, like an intellectual such as Bill Lynn to come in and essentially throw his hat into the discussion and see what we could go where we could go from there. Yeah, and it culminated uh, pretty much right before Persian Gulf won. Yes, right, and so it really got to be put into practice, like almost immediately. Yeah, almost immediately. Yeah, yeah. Like, hey, here it is. Oh, hey, now we get to do it. Mm-hmm. So cool. Um, so you, you mentioned uh, it was a good sort of a, a transition era or an era of transformation, identity. Uh, everyone's trying to find their identity, find their place. Once again, the Marine Corps is um, – there's a lot of debate about whether the, the United States even needs a Marine Corps anymore. Um, and so the Marines obviously are, are, are really digging in and – trying to establish themselves as a needed commodity within the DOD. Um, I feel like there's a lot of parallels today. And then there's a lot of nuances in today's era that don't necessarily reflect that uh, post-Vietnam era. Um, Especially as we're talking social media. Um, One of the things I I was hoping that you could help us maybe unpack is uh, in your paper is sort of how the, like you said, this guy who was on the outside looking in, if you could tell us a little bit about how that worked as far as him integrating into the discussion, being that he wasn't, and at least wasn't an active duty Marine, and sort of how that discourse um, 
evolved and how it's sort of different than the way that so the, the discourse is today. So my hypothesis on how he was able to, to get into that is um, because he, uh, I believe. And, and who is this, by the way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was yeah. about to say, yeah. as, the, as the resident idiot in the room, <laughs> Bill Lind, William Lind. So yeah. uh, short uh, TLDR on, on Bill Lind. He was a, uh, got a master's degree in history from Princeton, primarily German military history. So the time we know, uh, a lot of our intellectual discussion was based on what a lot of these like ex you know former Nazi German uh, Blitz, generals or Krieger guys yeah we're yeah. we're writing and then so uh, that's like the the big I guess uh, military uh, history historiography of that era so then he gets a job uh, working for a congressional staffer and like someone who got a master's in in, mil in history with a emphasis on military history. The big thing you want to do is a job that involves just that, and it's a, it's a very uncompetitive <laughs> environment. So he he I, from so my hypothesis is that he wanted to go forth and use his education to try to essentially like help the uh, American military institution. And a lot of at that time, the army wasn't really looking towards the maneuver warfare doctrine, but the Marine Corps obviously because it it is uh, has a more tenuous relationship and. Uh, it's whether if we wanted or need the Marine Corps, um, especially when the military was downsizing. So the maneuver warfare offers a good opportunity to still be a, a proficient military force, um, even with those downsizing issues. So uh, he comes in and I, th I think he wanted to obviously enact change. And the best way he sought to do it was to come in and, and challenge the, the Marine Corps' ego. I mean, the pride of their institution. And in doing so, he insulted a lot of people along the way. But in essence, it it, it worked to his advantage because it got people responding. He started writing mm -hmm. articles, I think, for the Marine Corps Gazette, I think starting uh, 1975. And at one point, the editor in the in the uh, Marine Corps Gazette said, you know, we usually don't let civilians talk about talk in here. This is a primary like for Marines, by Marines. But because of his intellectual stimulation that he's providing, uh, we're going to keep him in. I mean, and he had a very tenuous love and hate relationship with a lot of Marines. I mean, at one point he was like banned from bases, <laughs> which is, I, I don't know how you're able to pull that off. But in essence, I mean, because he was loud and boisterous and challenging the Marine Corps and the Marine average Marines ego, it brought more attention to his views and, and made it so that the discussion uh, would take place. Then do you feel... Uh in, you know, obviously post-Vietnam, post-Watergate, um, obviously confidence in the civilian elected officials wasn't awesome. Uh, and you could say that there, probably, there may be some parallels today. What was it about his position as a staffer that gave him access, um, you know, pre-obviously social media and stuff like that? So was the Gazette his only entryway into this discussion or was it just did he sort of foresee it as being the most fruitful i definitely i mean the marine corps gazette is the professional journal of the marine corps and so if if you want to talk to the intellectual voices of the marine corps the marine corps gazette is the best way and it, it's it, it is still obviously like the best way to, to get into that discussion so i think he saw that as like the primary means and some of i mean i i did not uh go into any more of his uh personal interviews i want to focus primarily on the marine corps gazette mm. but it seems like uh 
I mean, just by the sheer amount of reactions. I mean, if you look at the amount of letters the editor before he was in and then after he was in, I mean, it blew up exponentially. So it it it, it worked. I think it was the uh, the best way in order to tap into um, the average average marine and get them involved in the discussion. And it it, it more or less worked. Yeah, it totally shaped the entire uh, environment. So who were the voices, the big voices that jumped on board? with him at that time so i it's, um in doing my research i think some of the big ones were you know uh, lieutenant colonel i believe mike wiley or w-y-l-y yes so um yeah. he was what he was i think the he was instructor at the end i know I'm, I'm, I'm instead of throwing out inaccurate information but he was one of the big ones he wrote a lot uh colonel john boyd who is uh um i think uh a Marine, uh ent brown wrote a book about uh boyd's influences he's pretty much like the big Angel in the sky, looking over uh, the uh, Marine Corps maneuver warfare um, adoption. So th- those were some of like the the bigger influences. Okay. So in, in you you mentioned um, so whether this was the only entry point or the best, it w- ended up being the best way to shape the to sh- sort of frame the discussion, get people on board, get people engaged, whether they hated it or loved it. Um, he clearly was a lightning rod. Uh, that more or less helped uh, push the Marine Corps to change and develop and to get people thinking about what the future of the Marine Corps was. And so a lot of uh, really great advertisement for the Gazette, good PR there. Um, But also, I mean, the reality is is that it it sparked the discussion. Um, And then so looking at today then, if we were to, uh, you know, move move the conversation until you know in in its relevance uh today we obviously we live in a world of oversaturated uh influencers uh influential medium social media um uh you were inundated with information on almost a minutely basis depending on your proximity to your phone um do you think something like this where you have this lightning rod guy william lind who's outside of the inner circle creating a ton of discussion. Do you think something like that could be replicated today, uh, given, you know, the limits of Twitter, given the, uh, you know, the, the distrust and truthiness of information? Obviously, we, we sort of are in, we find ourselves in an era of tribalism, and so it's really hard for those on the outside to break in, uh, you know, reputation, precedes truth in a lot of ways um what, what are sort of your thoughts like on the was this lightning in a bottle what happened with maneuver warfare or is this something that we can look back on and, and help us as we move into force design 2030 and eabo and those, those sorts of things i definitely think the platform does matter i don't think you're going to see a lot of these heavily intellectual and productive conversations on facebook and twitter just by the very nature of those social media platforms. Um, but one place, for instance, where I've able to actually find some pretty good discussion is um, there's a, on Reddit, for all, all those listeners who follow Reddit, there's r slash war college. And the moderators are, I mean, pretty pretty tight. You have to be within the rules of, of the forum, but there's a lot of, you know, people, someone will ask a question and you'll have a, a generally pretty intellectual discourse on it. And and quite frankly, I mean, the, the Marine Corps Gazette, Marine Corps Association, especially with a lot of the changes that we've done recently, is really trying to 
be the best platform for that. And especially I uh, recently with the uh, or the Marinus articles, the, uh, the the those series, mm-hmm. and the fact also like, Bill Lynn came back, and, and then there's been another you know clash between him and, and Marine officers. I think like Van Riper. Uh, for lack of better terms, ripped him a new one uh, in the uh, what was that? I think the September edition. So I, I I think if if we if especially the Marine Corps Association or any other the you know the service association can really harness the power of media and social media and and obviously with, with moderation and respect um, can, can create those rooms and spaces and acknowledge you know that we we can have good discussions via social media that are productive and. Because I mean, if if we can't do that, then I think then we're missing out on on tons of opportunity and intellectual voices that can help uh, the Marine Corps a remain as a service and b remain the most effective fighting service. Nice. All right. Well, uh, on that note of exposure and of uh, providing voices, who do we got coming up? Uh, for this episode, Vic, yeah. we have Miles Vining who is a very, very interesting, I can call him a young man. I'm older than he is. Uh, <laughs> he's just, yeah, just a, he's a character, right? Yes. I mean, he's, yeah. he's something out of a different era. He is a jack of all trades. He is a modern renaissance man, totally. if that makes any sense whatsoever. Uh, and since uh, we interviewed him, and since the Afghanistan situation has shaken down, he has found himself back overseas perhaps you could speak better to this Vic uh yeah I don't know how much of this uh, is told in confidence but yes he is with he's back overseas and he's trying to do uh what he can to help yes um we'll give you guys updates as uh the situation pans out but he's not in a safe position um yeah. and so but he still is sacrificing on behalf of uh Afghan and Afghanistan and uh yeah, he's not doing anything illegal, so I, don't, no. I want to make that very yeah. clear. He's all uh, working within the boundaries of the law and international law and human rights. But uh, It is a very crusader mission he is on. Yeah, he's a crusader he for over, sure. He's doing as much good as he can in the world. Yeah, and then I think in the interview we mentioned a number of organizations that um, he supports and is a part of. And so definitely uh, when this publishes or after the interview's over, um, take a look at uh, the um, – show notes on the podcast and uh, there'll be some links to some things you can help support him and everything he's doing. Um, but uh, William, man, thank you so much for coming on. That was awesome discussion. I appreciate it. Glad to be uh, glad to be part of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, be part, uh, more a part of it here in the future. So thank you for taking the time to introduce yourself to our listeners and talk about, uh, you know, what's going on in your headspace. And then we'll uh, look forward to seeing it uh, translate into uh, more content here for the podcast. All right. And without any further ado, Miles Vining. Take care, everyone. I'm here today uh, with Miles Vining. He's the author of the book Into Hellman with The Walking Dead. Uh, he co authored it with Kevin Schranz. Uh, it's a really, really great book. Um, you also you served with One Nine got out and well i'm not going to tell your story uh but uh, if you could then if you could just give us a little bit um of who you are and sort of where you know what your journey was like getting to this place 
Yeah, I'm Miles Vining. I enlisted in 2010. I on the East Coast. I went to I went to one nine. I served in uh, Charlie Bravo Weapons and Headquarters and Support Company um, in various capacities. And then I got out in fourteen and I went to Indiana University and graduated in sixteen. And then I joined a group called the Free Burma Rangers in that works in Southeast Asia and then also in the Middle East and Syria and Iraq. And I worked with a I founded a research group called Silao Report that reports on small arms in the Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asia. And the book came came about in my last or second to last year of service. And I started in on my second deployment, I started writing various things. And I was, you know, starting with that narrative that we're talking about. You know, I wanted to to, to write about the stuff we were going through. And it was an idea in 2014, but it didn't really, you know, it kind of got started getting serious later on in college as I started writing more and more and more. Um, and then, and then Shrons talked about writing something as well on Facebook. He said something about it and I got with him and we talked about it and we had a really good conversation about, you know, how to collaborate and that kind of thing. Um, and then he, he killed himself in September, 2015. And then Abby, his widow, gave me everything he had, which was about 20 pages. And um, then things kind of got a lot more serious. And I was like, you know, I have, I really have to, I really have to take this to publication. I really have to at least try. Um, and then through various ways, I mean, and then by this time I'd been working with the manuscript of up to about 125,000 words um, in 2016, 2017 ish. And then I, through a weird way, I mean, God blessed me in a very odd manner working with the Free Burma Rangers, and I was able to work with people that I was able to um, show it to a publisher. It was eventually this publisher, and they were interested, and now it's published. In um, December of 2019, um, no, it was October of 2019, it came out. So, Well, that that's yeah. a... That's an amazing story. Um, there's a lot that I want to delve into there. I've been taking some notes. Um, but first and foremost, I guess, if we could talk a little bit about your life before you joined the Marine Corps, I think that is a really fascinating aspect of your life. Do you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I grew up overseas. I spent 10 years in Thailand and a year in Malaysia and five years in Burma. And then I went to two years um, at a um, boarding school in, outside of Philadelphia, Valley Forge Military Academy. As my parents lived in China, and I, I went to boarding school. Um, it was a, it was a very typical State Department life. My dad worked for the State Department. We lived at these embassies. Um, I I loved it. I, lo I loved being overseas. I I don't I never knew what it was like to grow up in the U.S. Um, and you speak a ton of languages too, yeah. right? Well, Thai, Thai mostly. Thai is okay. probably my best. Um, I loved, I loved Thailand. I loved growing up there. I led tons of friends there, and amazing times, amazing experiences there. And um, it, it was a very, uh, I don't know. I had, I had, I had a very awesome childhood that I've been blessed with in being able to see these countries up close and personal, and especially in Burma. Um, Burma really shaped my worldview. Um, my parents were always interested in Burma. My parents met in Burmese class. Um, so Burma was um, 
being able to live in that sort of military dictatorship and see and see some of the see some of the worst parts, see a worse part of the world um, up close and personal and be able to see that stuff in person really influenced sort of my worldview and thinking about things. And that definitely contributed to going into the service and really saying, you know, if I can do anything to prevent this kind of thing happening in my own country, I want to be a part of that sort of thing. Um, so that was a big that was a big push there. However, I, I think I, I came from um, the, the social groups I was in with, you know, my parents and then later on at school, it's, you know, all my, all my friends, all my friends went to college. I was in that gener I was in that generation of everyone going to school and stuff. And I was, you know, I was not, I did not want to, I didn't, I didn't want to go to school. I wanted to enlist. And that was, I was, I was the bit, I was a big outlier among all my high school friends, both from Burma and from the US, from the boarding school I went to, um, you know, everyone else went to school. I didn't. And that goes back to my interest in the service earlier, um, being a child and, you know, looking into this stuff, you know, I, I don't, I don't want the officer thing. I want that primal, you know, enlisted route. I want to be, I want to know what it's like to be that guy in, in the middle of nothing, you know, that sort of thing. And that's what I wanted. And that's what I got. And I enlisted out of that. And, you know, I kind of surprised a lot of, I, I surprised a lot of people in my family and also a lot of the, a lot of my friends around me. Um, some of them knew I was going to do it, but everyone was like, oh, wow, you know, you're going to be cannon fodder in the Marine Corps. And I was like, yes, <laughs> that's exactly where I want to be. Yeah, it's like, so, nailed it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of my upbringing and how I got to, how I got to enlist. Yeah. Man, that is, uh, that's awesome. And, and how, uh, I guess serendipitous is it that you ended up at the, with the walking dead, like through all of that story, you ended up with a unit that's called the walking dead. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. And you know, we didn't, I hadn't even heard of one nine or one nine's reputation, um, before I got there and it was SOI. Like all oh, half our class went to one nine, half our class went to one three, and the class the one of the guys I very specifically remember this guy Perry who went to uh, Alpha Company. He comes walking into the squad bay and he found he after we find out we're getting to one nine and he comes walking in and he's like, "All right, guys, I guess we're all gonna die because the name of the unit we're going to is called like the Dead Walking or something." And I'm like, <laughs> "What? What are you talking about? You know?" And it's like, what the heck and someone else is like well i had this vietnam reputation you wikipedia and it's like sure enough first battalion ninth marines the walking dead so nice and that was way before amc made that into something huh and that's <laughs> yeah you know and everyone's you know 2000 um 2013 or 14 whenever the walking dead um tv show comes out it's the most ridiculous thing because people are like you know you know, you see my shirt, like my shirt says, you know, first battalion, ninth Marines, the walking dead, or, um, like someone will say something and be like, Oh, something will be mentioned about the walking yeah. dead. And someone will say, Oh, the TV show. Yeah. The show's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, we, and then those of us from one nine are just like, just gritting our teeth. Like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> we're the OG. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's uh, that, that's amazing. I spent some time um, in UAE working for uh, State Department, um, and uh, that is a great life. And I could definitely see some of the 
you know, back molar sucks that happened when you said that you were going to lisp. He was like, uh, you know, like the audible back molar sucking sound. Um, but that that's really, that's fantastic um, to have that sort of perspective. So you talked about worldview. Um, having made that, you know, being that outlier then as you were in the Marine Corps, you're doing, you know, you're doing God's work uh, in Nawa. How did that, or did that worldview change? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, things got real very quickly. Um, and I think Nawa is, you know, Nawa, being in Nawa on that first deployment was one of the most influential things I've ever probably done. One of the more influential things I've done in my life, and that's still sort of affecting me today and all the other guys I was with. But I think it's, I don't know, especially it affected me in that, you know, from growing up overseas and being interested in sort of world events and seeing stuff and always taking an interest in things. For the first time, I was actually on the sort of, I was on the, um, I was on the, I was on the, the end, actually, how do I say it? For the first time, I was actually actually in it and i was actually affecting a change you know at my small little level as a lance corporal in a rifle company right but because growing up overseas it's like well you're there you're not really affecting anything you're kind of just watching it happen all around you mm -hmm. um and then i enlist and then it's you know in in the fleet it's you know train 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 and it's everything's kind of notional i mean sure the live fire ranges and the hikes you know they can get a little bit rowdy um a little bit dangerous here and there um but it's still all it's still all notional but then i deploy and it's like you know wow i'm in it and i'm actually seeing like, okay wow we're actually patrolling here and you know there's this happening and there's that happening and we can help these people and you know these people aren't working with us and we have this problem and it's a real world problem whereas everything else is kind of you know before that it's kind of like oh well um so i think that was a big that was a big um that was a big difference that the first deployment made um in that sense yeah yeah i definitely i feel like there is a there is that sort of that that separation or that um that distancing that like well that's them over there like yeah i might be living here but that's them they've got their problems and we're sort of inoculated or we're, you know we're, we're sanitized um from that issue yeah and then once you're literally boots on the ground there's not that layer of separation anymore um so what then do you feel like that those experiences have helped you on your deployment especially as like interacting with the afghans um sort of having um, maybe a more nuanced understanding of culture than maybe some of your fellow Marines? No, I think it did. It made a huge difference because whereas a lot, like a lot of the guys in my platoon, you know, at our patrol base, um, a lot of the guys, this is, you know, this is their first time out of the U S you know, they're, they're kind of, you kind of transplant guys from, you know, the middle of Pennsylvania or the middle of New York. And, you know, these are guys who've never left the U.S. They don't speak another language. They, they've only known, you know, other Americans their entire lives. You kind of transplant those guys into Nawa, and it's like, <laughs> you know, out of Pennsylvania into a <laughs> yeah. patrol base in Nawa. Now yeah, yeah. you're 
Yeah, now you're dealing with different languages, different people, different religions, different cultures. You're dealing with people doing things that are that are you think are insanity, like they're crapping on the side of the field and they're they're like praying five times a day and stuff. And on, that could be talk about a culture shock. I mean, you just went from one extreme to another. To you just went from you know Pennsylvania farm boy to middle nawa patrol base right and i think that's i think that is a real culture shock for a lot of marines going into that really austere environment i mean same going to korea or going to vietnam and stuff for me for me though when i went to nawa because i was exposed earlier to, to you know to living in burma to living in thailand and i saw a lot of this stuff so it was kind of like it wasn't it wasn't a total culture shock for me seeing uh working with afghans and seeing things it was like oh well they do things a little bit differently than they do in burma as opposed to this and things like learning pashto for example you know foreign languages was was something that it, it was just it, it was there it wasn't there wasn't anything exotic or unique about a foreign language to me um growing up in thai and running around speaking thai and then burmese and stuff so when i got to now i was like okay well the foreign language here is pashto well why don't we get like okay it was almost like a natural step to all right well let me sit down with my interpreter every day and let's work on pashto grammar and pashto vocabulary um and i started doing that um and so that you know and i specifically remember you know being on post with some of my buddies a guy named mahoney actually you know, and he's like, he's just totally jarred about like, what is what is going on here? And I'm just, yeah, well, I guess this is the way people do things, you know, um, and that and I think that definitely helped a lot um, in that in that regard. And I think and, and I think um, and, and I think some some guys take that experience and, and they kind of get a negative out of it. So they go to Afghanistan and it's like, you know. They, they they go to Afghanistan or you know they're 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 put down in a patrol base in Nawa, which they they're not just that like leatherneck or because right. yeah because I saw this later on my second deployment right when on my second deployment to Leatherneck where we stayed on Leatherneck and it was this very weird like we you get leave cans you got waffle bars and ice cream bars and salsa nights and showers yeah. all sorts of crap you know. And it's like it, it you but we'd go out on the patrols and you know get shot at or deal with people and stuff and then we'd come back and then it's like you're back on Wi-Fi and that kind of thing. So I had this very distinct these two very distinct deployments of that and I saw it in some of the guys in my platoon on the second deployment. You know, th they didn't get that culture shock as much mm. because they didn't. You know, th it, it'd be like an exotic little foray into mm. the villages and we go into these villages and. They'd get a little snapshot, and they'd see like, oh, this weird thing, like, oh, this well, or this weird way of living and stuff. But it was just a little foreign. and they'd go back in it. Whereas on the first deployment, like when you're at that kind of patrol base, you're living in that environment, yeah, um, that austere environment, and you're just so like slapped in the face with what is this kind of thing. And I and I noticed that um, between those two deployments. And you kind of see it, and I think it was way more of a culture shock for a lot of Marines going into that austere patrol base living where it's like, you're like, what is this? Whereas to me, I was like, I wasn't, I was less of what is this? And I was more of, 
okay, this is this is how the Afghans do it. I've seen how the Burmese do it and how the Thais do it in certain ways. So I don't know. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, yeah, uh, there is that sort of, it's almost like, uh, I don't want to be smug or, uh, you know, thumb my nose at anybody, but it does seem like when you're in those massive built up areas that when you do go on patrol from there, it's almost like going on a, like a combat vacation or something. Um, because like you said, you're only getting it for those few hours a day. And then you go back to, a, a for the most part, a, a westernized version of that yeah. culture. Whereas, and if I remember Loy Calais, and I, I think we only drove through there um, on our way to Las Vegas, but um, I mean, you guys, it was a converted um, uh, mansion, right? So, I mean, it used to be uh -huh. an Afghan's home, right? You're you're thinking of a patrol base further south that was called um, um it was one of our Charlie Company bases. It was is it the called, one that was it closer to Garmser? Yeah, it was okay, called yeah. uh Lamadan. Um, yes, it was, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think it was like it was a converted mansion. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I, I'm familiar with that one, but no, Lloyd Calais was one of the. Uh, patrol bases in a box like they built it it was it was it was a very basic um construction i think they built a lot of them like this um but just concrete concrete square concrete walls two posts uh three buildings um and that that was the that was the okay. patrol base okay. right there yeah yeah um that's funny you mentioned that the mansion because we always heard about it and we always joked with some of the guys it's like oh wow you guys living in a mansion like sounds rough <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, well, the, the thing about it is, you know, because everything like, uh, you know, for um, that region, like a sign of wealth and prestige is marble. Mm -hmm. But I tell you, when a, when that marble gets all that dust and on it, and you know, you're in your your uh, your combat boots, man. I I almost broke my ass so many times on those stairs because it just gets slippery as ice. And so, yeah, it's, it yeah, was, yeah. It, it would look cool, but it was dangerous. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we're talking about culture shocks. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned in your book, I think it was chapter one, uh, the, the chapter titled boot, you talk about, um, your experiences at SOI. Um, so talk about that a little bit. So you were an outlier coming, uh, you know, as a sort of international teenager of mystery, you joined the Marine Corps and now you're an SOI. Do you feel like it was everything you expected or was there, did you have a similar experience as maybe some of your fellow Marines who were like, like you said, like thrown from the farmlands of Pennsylvania into Loy Calais? Did you feel something similar when you uh, were going through your um, MOS training and, and SOI boot camp? Um, I think. Uh, I think, you know, boot camp was was a very intense summer camp. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Greatest vacation I'd never want to do again. Yeah, yeah. It's like boot. I think boot camp was was I think boot camp was everything, you know, it was kind of built out to be that we'd heard of before. Like, you know, some of the and y y some of the things it is and some of the things it's not. I mean, some of the things like the sand fleas. I never there were never any sand fleas apart from like one morning and that was a disappointing experience. I was like, where where is this like 
like phenomenal yeah. like Marine Corps sand flea experience. It's like I'm totally missing out on this, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. So little things like that. Um, it was so yeah. I, th- I think I think boot camp was kind of what what it, what what we expected it to be and more kind of thing. And certainly this very, you know, boom, in your face sort of thing. And then SOI, um, SOI sort of was very was very streamlined and very uh, a lot simpler, you know, than boot camp. But then you got to the fleet, and I you know I talk about it in the book, and the fleet picks back up again and it's kind of like soi you're kind of being babied and because the instructors can't there's you know are kind of they can't do much to you and stuff and everyone's sort of you're still in that very basic phase but then you get to the fleet and it's it kind of reverted back to boot camp again with the amount of you know um well in, in a sort of adult way sort of thing because now it's like now you're on their own now you're on your own in the fleet and like you screw up or you know your your career is what you make of it at that point and you the how you influence people and you know um the senior marines beating down on you or hazing you or stuff like that um and it's it's for real whereas the glove the gloves are off in a way that they aren't at um at soi um I don't know. That was that was sort of expected too. It was kind of depressed. It was really depressing at the time. <laughs> um, and then a lot of guys, you know, led to a lot of guys getting married and leaving, and just like, man, yeah. that's a whole another route to take. That is, yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah, no, I think so. As a culture shock, I think the fleet was the real sort of culture mm-hmm. shock for for a lot of guys when they got into that that situation. Um, it's for real now in that way. Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, let's talk a little bit about your book. Uh, well, I guess let's talk a lot a bit about your book. So we'd uh, we'd started talking about narrative, um, but I want to touch a little bit on the art uh, and the power of storytelling. Um, I really feel like it's important what you and Charons did, some of these other authors you had mentioned, um, because I feel like there's a there's a need to take the power back or at least have more agency over your story rather than you having to fit into this narrative that has been generated via publishing and, and popular misconceptions or even a, even in a good way. You know, every time you go to a bar and someone says, hey, let me buy you a beer, you know, thank you for your service. I feel like there's a still a sense that well, what are you thanking me for? Are you thanking me because I'm in the same service as Dakota Meyer or because you saw footage of, you know, Phantom Fury, Fallujah 2, <laughs> or are you thanking me because you really understand what it is that I'm going through? Um, and so could you talk a little bit about about that, about how you felt or did you feel a sense that I'm I'm taking this back for me? I'm taking possession of my story that's a very uh, that's a very it's a very no it's a very interesting question um with that um and i think if it you know there's the 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 veteran narrative so to speak it's it's such a challenging thing because of the culture that we're in and the world that we're in because the culture and the world it's like um you know, it wants veterans to fit in a certain narrative this way or that way. But to be honest, it's like, you know, veterans come in all sorts of shapes, sizes, and configurations. And 
um, y- you know, what, what, what we can only do is, yeah, so we can only put forth our experiences and what we went through and what, you know, what me and Shrons did. We can only put, put that forth and then people can look at it and, and take it back and dissect it for whatever it's worth. Um, and that's the best that we can do at that point. So in terms, you know, taking that, that agency of saying, of saying, um, you know, this is, this is what we went through. And we can only put that up on the altar, so to speak, on the veteran altar, right? And be like, well, this is this is our testament. This is what we what we did. Um, and we want to talk about it in that way. We can only do that for ourselves. And hopefully, hopefully, you know, other people can see it. Um, you know, I will say there is something about so getting in touch with a lot of people. I, I actually had the wife of uh, one of my friends tell me this because he like he didn't want to tell me this. Um, but she was like a lot of a lot of guys um well especially the guys that stay in um they get you know everything is about the sort of machine that the marine mm-hmm. corps is and they're yeah. caught up in it and they're caught up in it right and what she said to me was that you know you gave you know you you what you gave them is you said no no like look what you did was important and special and you know it was worthwhile and this is a story about it and you spoke for those who couldn't speak and she really she what she was saying to me is like you know he he would never come out and say that because he's still in the machine and he's still churning out kind of thing mm-hmm. but it's like he can point to that and be like look i was a part of this and this story is something i was a part of and it's like um like bianco you know that i sent you um yeah. the, email, the email about you know he he just uh he he passed away 2 weeks ago 2 or 3 weeks ago and like i go into his uh his his personal effects with his brother and like our book is there, you know, and it's like, you know, I don't, I don't know if he ever opened it or not. The pages were pretty crisp, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's something that he can latch onto. And, you know, he was obviously saying, you know, that's something I was a part of and his brother didn't even know that, but now his brother knows. So, um, I think that's, you know, that's the best that we can do is just tell, talk about our part and our little piece in the entire chain. Um, and especially, well, no, and I think I think that's it. That that's well, the that's, best we can do. <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. I, I I look at like you know all the different writing styles that we can use. You know, like um, who's it? Bill O'Brien. Um, the things they carry. You know, it tells the perspective of his experiences through his gear. Um, you know, Big West writes the village, uh, and he takes himself completely out of the story and tells it all third person of the Marines that were around him uh, in uh, Vietnam. And then there's like the more sanitized, right? So like, you know, you read academic books, history books about wars, and it's very distancing. And um, it's very matter of fact, you know, this happened on this day. And, you know, you look at things chronologically, you can see the causal links to things, but there's no, there's no engagement with the story. It's just, okay, yeah, that, that that's great. That happened. That was good information. I can't, I'm not really interrogating my life or I'm not seeing myself in that narrative. And I think what you and Shrons did there is something that goes beyond sort of that AAR, you know, the after action mm. part, you know, um, yeah. which, which has its merit, but it's a flash in the pan, you know, because those are all sort of time sensitive, geographic sensitive, regionally sensitive. So I could take an AAR and then, maybe within a year or two, use it and be effective somewhere. What you guys, I feel, did here with it, making it accessible 
to not just Marines, not just people that you serve with, but people who just want to know what it was like to be a grunt standing post in Loy Clay. I think it's that level of accessibility. Um, and so I, I think like in sharing that experience, did you feel a sense of, I know you're talking about like, well, you know, we put it up on the altar, the veteran altar as our, our offering. Um, but I feel like there's more to the art. There's the art reflecting life and life reflecting art there as mm. well. Um, yeah, what do yeah. you what do you think? Yeah, well, and that and that's what that's what I wanted to that's what I wanted to do. Um, in terms of, you know, I wanted I, I wanted to try to portray these like odd nuances and these weird and these struggles and in, in certain ways that people don't see from the outside. Um, you know, kind of how and I, that's why you know, growing up, I read Jarhead, and that was. A, very fundamental book mm. my sort of literary thing because jarhead goes into that it goes into those ideas um and he kind of goes on this you know small philosophical sort of journey and no i wanted to i wanted to do that in this book and shran's wanted to do it too and you see it in some of his things um and not just you know and talk about the weird struggles and, and stuff of being home or being on deployment or you know weird little things and that's and you can't you can't get that yeah you can't get that through an AAR sort of thing and um and that's and that but that's part of that that's part of what I wanted to to try to get out um things like relationships and love and you know things falling out and problems happening and um problems inner problems within the Marine Corps and then outside of it and then you know getting out and that whole kind of thing but like I don't know the little little tiny nuances of stuff that you can't um, that you don't that don't that people don't think about, and I'm very glad that I started writing this in 2014 and right afterwards as well because I think a lot of that stuff I would have missed and would have forgotten um, mm. had I written this like 10 years later, and I think that's very it's a you know there's a difference in a narrative that's written right after an event versus one that's written much later. The one much later is, is much more reflective in certain ways and misses out on these small little things that the one written right afterward kind of gets um, or might get in some ways. So, yeah. Nice, man. Yeah, I, I really do feel like there's a lot in reading your book that you can start to see, like the reader can see themselves in the narrative, regardless of whether a veteran or service member or have been to Afghanistan or whatever. I think there's, like you said, there's a there's an examination of your life. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is very important and almost cathartic, especially for people who have served. It was it was very cathartic uh, typing it and and writing it. It was one of the most cathartic things I've ever done. I think, and I, I think it was. Um, I think it was great um, in terms of that. And I, honestly, I, I would like super encourage like a ton of people um, to like just just like, you know, tell your story like you don't need to publish a book, but, you know, you need to you need to go over it and you need to talk about it. And you need to because just hearing yourself talk about it or just talking about things, especially oh, traumatic things and other things, um, it there's the the power of self healing through storytelling is in insanity it's amazing 
important, I think. Um, and it's not it's not often done. And a lot of guys are like, oh, I don't want to talk about this. Or I need to keep that in. It's like, no, you need you need to. Yeah. It doesn't need to be in a book or on YouTube or you know, it can be to your family or to someone. But you need to tell other people about what you did, or you just record yourself doing it, or I don't know. Um, it's essential, I, I think. Amen to that, uh, brother. Yeah. Well, I guess on that note, that's a good transition point for we could talk about. So transition. So this idea of, um, you know, I mean, you have a lot going on and it's all so fascinating. Um, but I guess so if we could just talk a little bit, where are you now? Like, not necessarily your headspace, but like physically, like, uh, what are you what are you working on now? What are some of your projects? Right. Right now, it's right now I'm working on. Well, my I got back. I just got back from a movie in uh, China, um, where I was a, a technical advisor under a team called FX Hammer. Cool. Um, that was working on a historic drama about the Chosin Reservoir. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, told from the Chinese perspective. Um, but I will say, I think the movie's coming out in August next month, and um, the movie. Um, I, I think they did a very good job. I think they did. They tried their best to portray the U.S. side and the Marine Corps and, and Army side um, in the campaign and at places such as Incheon um, really well. So I'm, I'm, I'm proud of my I'm, pr I'm proud of my uh, my work that I did there. So I just got back from there. Um, I'm kind of what's the uh, what's the title? Sorry, to interrupt. what's the title? Um, the battle, um, the battle at Lake Changjin, which is the which is actually the proper name for the chosen uh for the chosen reservoir um chosen is actually a chinese transl it is actually a japanese translation of changjin and we got stuck with chosen because mm. of all the maps that the marines were using in korea were all japanese maps with japanese language translations so yeah how, how fascinating how cool so we'll see how that goes. And so I've got that, and then I'm um, working on my non-for-profit, um, well, our non-for-profit, Silaf Report, which researches small arms in the Middle East and Central Asia, North Africa. So, yeah. Very cool. And then mm -hmm. can we talk a little bit about the Free Burma Rangers? I, I saw that in your book, and then you mentioned it earlier. That's, uh, you just talk a little bit about them? Yeah, the Free Burma Rangers is a multi-ethnic uh, relief organization based in Southeast Asia um, that works with refugees in uh, Burma and in Syria and Iraq. Um, it's all an all-volunteer group, and we're we go into we're led by um, this guy named David Eubank who founded it in the early '90s. Um, former Ranger, former SF guy, um, been but worked on this group. And the, the mission of the Free Burma Rangers is to bring help, hope, and love to, um, to, to oppressed people in conflict zones, um, specifically in the front lines in, in Burma, in the civil war that's been going on for 70 years, and then in Syria and Iraq as well, in Mosul, during the Battle of Mosul, working mm. with refugees trying to get out in Syria, working with refugees caught up. Um, sort of in between the lines, and and recently, um, in um, when Turkey invaded, helping some of the, some of yeah. the civilians that were trapped in Tel Tamer and Anissa, and that is in the, those areas. We're a very small um, volunteer 
relief group. Um, we can only we can only work in very small little areas, um, and only make a very small difference. We're not some big huge NGO, but we, we do exist, and I volunteer with them as often as I can, and I'm still a part of them. So that's that's so awesome. Um, and we'll we'll make sure that uh, we'll link all of these things um, in the show notes when we go live with this stuff so everybody can check out and hopefully have as big a heart uh, as you have uh, for some of these causes and, and, and at least help you guys out maybe monetarily so that you can expand a little bit. Um, so on that note, like, so you, I mean, clearly you have a calling to help um and to not and not just to sort of fire and forget with like a donation or or you know membership or some bumper stickers on your car i mean you're in the thick of it all uh and it seems like you've been drawn to that for a long time um what are some of your thoughts then as marines are making their transition um from wearing the uniform every day to not wearing a uniform every day um Man, it's that's, hard, right? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a toughie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, man, I think, eesh, I'm still transitioning. Ha 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 ha. You know, yeah, look at my haircut. Yeah, I haven't left. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, eesh, I think, I I think, wow, it's such a complicated subject in so many ways. Um, I think. I think they need, there's so many things that go into that, but I think the one thing is, I think the biggest thing is you need to, um, you need to, uh, you need to unwind or let loose. You need to, you do need to unwind um, because every, everything we do is just so high tempo. It's just so boom, 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 deployment, training, this, that, you know, go to CACs, go here, go there, go to this school. It's like, get off deployment. And it's like, man, I just got back. It's like, okay, we're going to 96 and then we're starting workups again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's just like, boom, boom, boom. Right. Um, but you, what you don't realize is throughout all that, your your everything that happens in terms of trauma, in terms of family stuff, in terms of personal stuff, that personal development, like that kind of thing, all that stuff is just like slammed to the curb. It's just slammed to the side. So you need to find a way to release that and you need to pro you need to process that. You don't have time to process that when you're in the fleet, when you're in. And I had this really awesome, this really good conversation at uh Schranz's um memorial service after you after he died um one of the guys in my in my company um his sister passed away while he, he was in and like it sucked when he was in and it was like you know right after deployment and he, he went to her funeral and all this other stuff but then he went right back right and then it wasn't until he got out and we were had we had this conversation that he was like oh crap wait my sister died <laughs> like, mm. like like two or three years later and it was like wait my sister died wait what <laughs> you know Man. and that was that hit him right afterwards right so so but that's what i mean in that um he just he, he hadn't even processed that right right so but you got to do that for like everything that goes on now i think there's that thing that goes on and i think the other thing that needs to happen is is like well I think that needs to happen. 
Um, and I think guys, you need to make like you need to make a clean break in a way. Um, it's like I don't know. It's like kind of like a bad. It's like a a, re- a relationship. You know, a bad. Uh, it's kind of like a breakup. It's like the worst thing you can do in a breakup is like go back to the ex that you were with. It just makes it just makes things worse. You need to just cut it off entirely. You know, no questions asked. Boom. So, and I th- I feel like it's kind of like that with the Marine Corps. You just need to cut it off. And you just need to, you need to move on to something else. Something else needs to be your new mission, your new MO, your new commander's intent sort of deal. Um, because if you just keep going back to it, it's like you're going to get caught up in this world of you're half in, half out, and you don't know where you are. And you're just kind of, you're just kind of like rambling and rolling around. And that, I think that, that, will, that will hurt guys in a, in a lot of ways. At the same time with um, sort of with disability wise, I mean, disability, I think, is hurting people in terms of the monetary payments that exist with disability. I mean, you have guys out on like 60, 80, 100 percent, and I think it's hurting more than it's helping in some ways. You have um, guys who are – they have no incentive to work. They have no incentive to do their own thing. They have no incentive to go out and explore or do whatever. Um it's just not there. So I think that hurts more than helps. Mm. So for guys mm. who are getting out, it's like, sure, you may be on 80% or you may be on 100%. The chances of you, the chances of you being depressed and just wanting to hurt yourself are going to go up that much more. Um, and that's very unfortunate because, I mean, I met so many, a lot of guys that I met. It's like, well, I'm 100%. I don't have to do anything. I'm 100% total and disabled. And it's like, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely disabled. You you are literally disabled. You are literally like taken out of the equation of the world. Like you are don't have to do anything, you know. So I think that help that hurts mm. in a lot of ways. Interesting. Um, so I think, and that's something like they, some people aren't talking about, um, with that, um, and I don't. So there's something with that there, but and I think. I don't know. I think guys who are getting out now, it's like, I think you, you gotta, you need to dream big. You need to go big, you know, get, you get go. on that GI bill, you know, do, do things that you wouldn't do before kind of thing. You need to make that clean break. Don't depend on that disability, get out and do something. Um, and with something like that. And I think guys who are, who get involved in defining that sort of new community. And I think that's, I think that is sort of the biggest the biggest difference if you can get into a community you know no matter where that community is i think that makes a big difference there because i think like and i talk about it you know in the book i think the biggest thing um on deployment um sort of with like trauma and ptsd wise and stuff um the biggest thing is community and is in being um accepted and involved in a group of people that love you and care for you sort of thing. And when you don't have that community anymore, like that is a scary place. That is a scary place to be. And I think that's why a lot of these guys, well, I mean, you know, Sean's had, Sean's had, you know, all sorts of things going on with him, but I think a lot of guys who are killing themselves or who are finding themselves really horribly depressed and stuff and, or with PTSD, um, um, they, they they lack that community and that focus, you know, whether it's God, whether it's religion or something like that, um, that's really hurting them. Um, on on that on that note, at the same time, I think we need, there needs to be a a serious conversation um, in terms of PTSD and trauma, um, where you know I think Sebastian Junger 
like, I, gosh, I look up to him in a lot of ways, but he, I think he hits this so hard on the head when he talks about PTSD in that, you know, PTSD is a short-term fix. It's a thing that helps us in terms of, you know, if you're, you're a caveman and, you know, you're going through the woods and then your buddy gets mauled to death by a tiger and you have flashbacks of that part of the woods or you're scared every time you go to that part of the woods and it's like, you know, it's like that's that helps us as humans. It's like, well, okay, don't go to that part of the woods again, right? It's yeah, like, if it wasn't for PTSD, tigers will get to you there. We'd you know, always grab the hot pot, right? Um, yeah, you know, it's like, oh, you grabbed it. It's like, ah, you know, the, the pot's really hot. Well, don't grab it when it's on the stove, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and and I think it's hurting. Uh, it's hurting veterans in terms of trauma and PTSD because. PTSD is a short-term fix to help us evolve, to become better, to be like, okay, don't go to, don't do that kind of thing again. You'll get hurt, kind of deal. And the problem is, you got veterans who are getting out, and you know, they're like, you know, it's like, oh, my PTSD. It's like, oh, my my experience in combat has like is is still affecting me today, you know. And for me, and for me, I look at this from different perspectives. Well, I kind of look at this from like. Man, like, and it's weird. I don't know. You talk to a lot of vets. Well, I talked to a lot of the guys that I was in, a lot of infantry guys, and it's like, I loved combat. Combat was awesome. You know, I got to shoot at people. I got to blow, like, people were blowing things up all around me. It was like this big adrenaline rush. It was like, what? Like, combat was great. And it's like, oh, but, you know, my section leader was killed. And, and you're like, yeah, he was killed. But guess what? He died doing what he loved. You know, he loved it. Um, so don't take that death away from him, right? But at the same time, it's like, well, what, like, what's really hurting people? And I think it's that community-wise. And it's like, you know, don't diss combat. Combat was why you went in, like, you know. So, and and what I why I say this is that my experiences, um, sort of with FBR, and in seeing people that in seeing some of these places around the world and seeing, um, you know, Karen got people who've you know just lost their families and villages in current state and also in syria um who've been fighting for you know decades and decades and i meet a lot of these guys um in a lot of these austere areas of people who have just been fighting forever and there is no there is no trauma package for them there is no disability you know and i almost you know i i talk to guys who are like oh i was in you know Sangin or i was in marja you know, I went through all this hard stuff in Sangin, and I meet Afghans too, because I got out and you know I went back to Afghanistan um, several times as a contractor, as a YouTuber, um, as a researcher in Kabul, and uh, you know, and I think there needs to be a realization. It's like guys who are like, "Well, I was, I was in Sangin, and it was hard in Sangin, you know," and I, you know, and it's like, "Yeah, you're a hard dude." How about I introduce you to a Karen, you know, a KNLA guy who's been fighting in Karen State? For the past several decades, and he's been in ten times the amount of firefights and combat that you've been in. Like literally, like his 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 record in combat is extraordinary compared to what you have. And it's like he doesn't he doesn't have these issues. It's like he's not out there saying like, yeah, I'm a hard dude fighting in Karen, or I'm a hard dude. I'm with the YPG fighting in Syria. Um, they don't have this stuff, so it really humbles you when you meet these other people. So it's like. What I'm trying to get at is, you know, it's get over like it's like you it's like you were in Sangin and you were a hard dude and you got blown up a bunch of times. It's like, okay, so what? What are you doing right now? 
that is going to make a difference. And what are you doing right now that's making you a hard dude? And what are you doing right now that is making you a better person and a better element of society? It's like, yeah, that was great what you did in Sangin. That was great what you did in Nawa. That was great what you did in Marja. It's like, do, do you want to like? Do you want to? I don't know. Like, do you want to talk about? Do you do you want to talk about um, combat? As in, like, okay, do you want to keep on talking about that? Like, because I can introduce you, and I've met these people who are like, holy crap. I've got no room to stand on next to other people, right? So it's like um, in terms of PTSD and trauma and just trying to tie this all in together, right? It's like PTSD and trauma are a short-term fix. It's not a long-term problem. You know, the the story talk about storytelling about, you know, the Vietnam guys, you know, and I saw this movie. Actually, this movie came out called um, – um, it's – the highest medal or something. It's about this guy Pitzenberger, who was a um, an Air Force power rescueman in Vietnam, and um, they talk and they have these depictions. Me and my buddy were watching it. We we're actually laughing throughout the whole movie because they have these like very stereotypical depictions of these Viet- these crazy Vietnam vets that just like can't get, like bring the war home. They can't get over the war and stuff. And we're just like laughing about this, but it's like that's the depiction of Vietnam vets. It's like, dude, get over that. Like you know work in society kind of thing um i don't know and and that's kind of that's kind of what i would want to say for transition guys transitioning and getting out and you know if you're dealing with problems and stuff it's you know i don't think it's i don't think and that's what i'm trying to say is i don't think it's combat that is hurting you i think it's community and it's the lack of community and it's you know you don't have a god in your life you don't have people around you you're not doing something worthwhile that is what's hurting you not combat um because if it was you know if it was combat that if it was it was actually the actual experience of being on deployment and watching your buddies get blown to bits or watching other people get blown to bits and you know getting shot at and this and that it's like if that was the case like like i don't you i don't think that's the case because you you have these you know societies you know let's go back in history right and you got you got World War II. Like, think about this, right? You have the entire generation of the Second World War, and you have, you know, that entire generation comes back from the Second World War. You talk about combat. Holy moly. These are the guys on Tarawa at the Battle of the Bulge, you know, chosen. Well, we'll leave the Korean War out of this for now. But, you know, these, these are, this is some crazy fighting. These guys didn't come back from the Second World War. They didn't come back totally traumatized and just like, like literally in a state of paralysis. And like, oh, I went through Iwo Jima and I can't function now because I went through Iwo Jima. It's like, no, these guys came back and holy crap, look at what they did. They built like the greatest generation. They came back and they built cities and companies and homes and you know they did all these crazy things. Now, they did have problems at home. They did have issues. And they did drink themselves away at VFWs and American legions and stuff like this. Um, that did happen. So, but I think a, an, a facet of that was, you know, part of their generation was don't talk about what you did, what you saw in Iwo Jima, you know, and they just drunk themselves away in certain ways, you know. So, yeah, they did have they did have certain problems in other areas, um, but it's like look at the society though. Like guys are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and um you know talking about like ptsd and trauma and stuff and it's like like man thank you know thank god the second world war guys you know didn't sit around and try to get you know all and try to get disability payments for things their anxiety for iwo jima um 
thank God they didn't do that or else we wouldn't have a society at all after the war. You know, and it's a tricky subject because, you know, there are there there, there are fellows out there, there are dudes who went through some very serious crap and they they are they do have that sort of problems afterwards. Um and I I, I cannot knock you know guys who are like well I, I wasn't singing and half my platoon got blown to bits and i have survivor's guilt or this and that you know i can't knock those guys but at the same time what i want to say is yeah that sucked and you went through that but i think what you need what you need is community and what you need is a purpose and what you need is um, a way to go forward you don't need a disability payment you don't need somebody you know branding you kind of thing um and that I think that's what hurt so Schranz, right? Because Schranz was denied a PTSD paint, was denied a PTSD rating from the VA. Um, and that really hurt Schranz a lot. And because Schranz was like, wait, I'm feel I'm feeling really lonely and down and I'm feeling really bad. And the and the VA is like, no, you don't have PTSD. And that was just kind of um, you know, that hurt Schranz because Schranz was like, Oh, wait, now the VA is telling me I don't have it. So what is my problem? What am I dealing with? You know, what, why do I feel so horrible? Right. And it's like the VA says I don't have PTSD. So what do I have? So he didn't know. So he, he killed himself, you know, and that's a whole, that's a whole nother topic, um, on that. But it's like, it's like, you know, it's like, well, what did Trons need? And I think what he needed was community. He needed people to love him. He needed, uh, he needed, a, he needed that, that being a sense of being again kind of thing so i don't know it's it's such a convoluted complex topic it's, it's um, so we need to address it yeah. more it, it is yeah. so complicated i think you touched on a really um a really uh profound subject and that is community and and i think you know i, I know a lot of folks want to uh, avoid making comparisons between the greatest generation and the current generation um you know, because it's just hard to, you know, there's so many things you can't replicate. Um, but one of the things I think that is absolutely key is, is that those guys coming back had that community. You mentioned a few uh, mm -hmm. VFW, uh, you know, all of these different clubs because people belonged to things. Yeah. Now we have all of this technology, all of these things that supposedly connect us, but all they really do is just they distance us. Yeah. And so yeah. we don't have those communities anymore because like you were saying like what does someone do when they feel lonely their only real avenue is to just go online and get on a chat or you know hit an instagram where it's all of this fake reality anyways it's all this manufactured happiness and it's just it's further it's so much more distancing and you feel even more alone and so i think you're absolutely right i think as a marine is looking at that day that inevitable for anybody whether it's the first termer whether it's the njp you know the the guy getting out of the brig or it's the commandant of the marine corps everybody's getting out of uniform mm -hmm. at some point and it's that moment where you're part of a community one day and then you walk to your parking lot and you're not you know you walk to your car you drive off base and now you're not mm -hmm. and where do you replicate that um and where does that come from and so i think for and what I'm hearing you say is things like, you know, look for that passion, look for that place where you can belong so that, you know, because PTSD will get you stuck in that moment. That's the whole point. Uh, you know, that's what PTSD does is you relive and you're stuck sort of in that moment of trauma. And so you need 
that support group. You need that network that's going to help you move on. And I guess like what you're saying is that continue to write your story. You don't just close the book, put it on the shelf, and then you're done. Yeah. You know, there's – um, gosh, oh, there's this great book. Well, Wilfred Thysiger, right? Amazing. Like, you know – Arabian one Sands. Of, yeah. Arabian, he wrote Arabian Sands, and he wrote another one. Um, I forget what, it, what it's called. But he was like, he's one of these, like, he's one of the last great, like, jet, like last great British explorers who, like, the stuff he did will never be replicated by anyone, you know, on, on this earth, right? Like, he crossed, what this book is about is him crossing what's called the empty quarter in Saudi Arabia, which at the time, it was on, like, no, like, he was only the third or fourth European to ever do this, you know, and he's, you know, totally our, our fluent Arabic speaker, like, and he loved being with the Bedouin. He has awesome stuff about it, right? But my point is, this guy did some amazing stuff. He's a great dude, and I always and I always like to point this out to people in that. So he kind of his book Arabian Sands. He kind of like it's kind of semi biographical because he's talking about his life and stuff. And he has one chapter in here where he talks about he talks and he has one he has not not even a chapter. It's one paragraph. It's one paragraph where he talks about um, – he was like – because he, ta he talks about – because he's trying to lay on – I think he's trying to explain how and why he was able to get in with the Bedouin and what really drove him, his passion for just as just getting out there and just like being in the middle of nowhere, just exploring and going where no man has gone before kind of thing. So he talks about his life in Addis Ababa um, in Africa growing up and stuff like that, but, and then he sort of gets to the Second World War, right? He has one paragraph where he says, um, yeah, then in, in, the, in the war, because his generation still referred to the Second World War as the war. Like everyone mm -hmm. knew it was the war, right? Mm -hmm. And he was like, yeah, and then in the war, um, I, joined, I joined the SAS, and I fought, and I fought on the long range. And I fought with the long range reconnaissance groups in North Africa, and then I, I ran around Syria. And I did this, and I ran around Iraq and Syria and Mesopotamia, and da 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 da, and then I got out. And it's, <laughs> you know, and it's that's one paragraph, and I'm and I and I read that, and it's like he's like yeah, and then I got out, and then I wanted to go across the empty quarter, and let's get into the really juicy stuff, which is this book, and the rest of the book talks about his insane the insane journeys he takes about crossing the empty quarter with the bedouin and you know almost getting attacked and overran and like they're hiding and they have no water and they're in the middle of the desert and what do we do and all this crazy stuff like holy crap but what i always what i pointed out and i always like to point out this one paragraph is it's like dude he could have he could have like written a whole book he could have written a whole yeah. series on what yeah. he did what he was with the sas in syria and north africa it's like are you kidding me that was like one of the most pivotal like points of the Second World War, and he was yeah. a part of it. And he was, you know, he, he got it got in the Second World War. <laughs> yeah, you know, and he was, yeah, and he like, you know, he 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 could have talked about slaying bodies and like, you know, doing crazy things in Syria and North Africa, but he didn't. It was just one paragraph, and I always like to talk about it. it's like, it's like let your experience in the marine corps be that one paragraph you know i mean i mean for, from from my perspective right like who am i to tell that one paragraph it's like i wrote, I wrote a whole freaking book about it you know <laughs> <laughs> like who am i to talk about this you know but i will say in my defense it's like yeah i did i did write a whole book about it and i did do those four years 
but I went to college and I formed Sea Law Report and I worked with the Free Burma Rangers and I went into Syria um, when the Turks invaded. When every other NGO was running out of Syria and U.S. forces were running out of Syria retreating, I went in with the Free Burma Rangers and we were able to do that. And that was the most honorable things I ever did in my life. Um, and I went to China and I was a technical advisor for a freaking Hollywood level movie. Like I did all these things, you know, and my, my point though is you know, in defense of don't, you know, don't let, don't, don't write a book about your service. Right. Um, of that kind of thing. <laughs> but that's, but don't I, let it be your story. Don't let the book be your story. Exactly. Don't let that define you define the rest of your life. It's like, where are you kind of thing? And, that's what this guy did. You know, he could have rested on his laurels and he could have just sat back and he could have been like, yeah, like I was with the SAS in North Africa and I was with the SAS and I was an intelligence officer in Syria and we, oh, we, we smoked the Germans. Like <laughs> we stacked some German bodies in North Africa. And, you know, he would have been fine to do that, right? With the standards that we have, it's like he would have been absolutely fine. That there was, would have been, there would not be an issue with him doing that, and he would have had a great book about being with the SAS and running around and doing and doing rad stuff. That would have been fine, but he didn't. He left that. He let. He didn't let his service, you know, stick on him. He went. To, he went in. He went to Arabia. He lived in Africa. He lived in Kenya. Did all this other stuff. So, I think. And that's what. I, and that's sometimes what. And that's a big message that I, I don't know. I would like to get across. It's like. Like, don't let your time in the service define you and let it trap you. And you're still like stuck there. You know, it's like you're still stuck on Paris Island. You're still stuck in Sangin. You're still stuck in Helmand. You know, use it and jump and bounce from that um, kind of nice. thing. Um, and uh, that's that's a big message. I mean, I would definitely encourage and you know tell guys getting out. It's like let that be your let your service be the paragraph of the rest of your life don't let yeah. it be your your stone that you're stuck on and you never leave it and you just you're like uh you know yeah, like, oh, i like no. that i like that you know? yeah it's it's the launching pad not the not the thing that you're chained to exactly you know and i think for a lot of guys they just they just get chained to it in so many ways and they get stuck in it and they're just like oh my glory days and saying in my glory days in Fallujah. And it's like, yeah, like, okay, your glory days. What's next? You know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's the, that's what I, that's why I want to point out, like, you know, meeting some of these other fighters across the world who have been through all this combat. And it's like, you're like, you know, how about you meet someone else and humble yourself a little bit um, with that kind of thing. So I don't know. Um, but yeah, I'm talking a lot, but it's just no, like, this is awesome, dude. <laughs> amazing stuff. Like I'm just, yeah. I'm just sitting here, just soaking it up. Well, um, I know you, uh, you do got some things, uh, still on your plate, and so I don't want to hold you up too much. This has been no, I got, no, I got, I got 20 minutes. I got a solid next 20 minutes. It's like okay. I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, here, let, let me hit you with this one, man. So yeah. we are talking about unchaining yourself, but I do want you to to latch back on just real quick. And if you could tell me your best day in the Marine Corps and not the day you got your DD-14. <laughs> That's funny. Um, I think, you know, um, I, th I think I have two, I think I have two best, well, two sort of best days. I don't know. I think 
I think, and I and I talk about this. I talk about this in the book. I think um, the I think the best day, like you know, wow. If I look through all four years like in a flash, I think one of the best days was um, when I got back and um, um, you know, going back to community. But when I got back, um, it was this weird conversation. It was just we were just chilling at the barracks, and there's this conversation where. Um, I had with this guy named Paul, Lance Corporal Paul. And we were just chilling at the barracks and we we're kind of talking with another. There's another senior in the room. And um and it sort of came about like the relationship I had with Paul with this other guy, because he was from another platoon and Paul was with me at Lloyd Clay. And um Paul was um and I was saying to Paul, um, I don't know how it came about, but it sort of just popped out and I was like, you know, Paul, um, you know, if you'd gotten hit on a patrol or something and you know, some kind of a firefight would have happened, you know, and you would have been lying out there. Like I would have gone through hell and I would have like, I would have risked my life to go get you. Um, and I, even if that meant like me dying. And he sort of looked at, looked right back at me and he sort of looked me right in the eye. And the thing about Paul is like, Paul's is very like, you'll see him in the book. He's just very like rough and gruff, like very rough around the edges. Like he does not mince words, you know, he just <laughs> like, the, the, you know, he's, he's, he's like a staff sergeant now too. So it's like, he's probably pissed at me writing about him, but, um, <laughs> but he's, uh, but Paulie is like, you know, he gives it to you, he lays it on straight. Right. So it's like, you know, you're getting, you're getting the straight, straight dope, dope from Polly. but he sort of looked me right in the eyes and he's like, you know, Viney, if that had happened to you, I would have done that to you, done that for you as well. And I think that was one of the most beautiful things that, you know, has ever occurred in my life. And that was kind of like, that was kind of the point that I'm talking about with that sort of community where it's like there was a point in time, you know, at Lloyd Calais where he would have done everything for me and I would have done everything for him. And that love right there, like you don't get that elsewhere. You don't get that outside of a combat deployment. Um, and you, you might be lucky if you'll get it somewhere else. Right. Um, and that's some, and you know, that day, that moment was probably one of like, you know, was was one of the most amazing times um in the marine corps that i had um and i think you know because it's just that profession of you know i love you dude and you love me and we're gonna do this kind of thing but that connection you don't get that and i think that's what guys want you know when they get out and that's what they're missing and that is the community you know that i'm talking about and you don't you don't that can't be replicated in the civilian world and it's very tough to find that to, to get on that level again right um there and it's there's sort of I don't know there's two other days that really mean a lot to me and the sec the second one was sort of sort of um coming to God kind of thing you know at Loy Calais and I talk about it in the book and that's sort of where I first discovered Islam and later I converted to Islam in 2015 um sort of being on post and just you know feeling uh, the Azan prayer coming up in the morning and seeing the environment all around me and I was I had this feeling there of like wow this is this is God. This is the epitome of God here. Um, and but that's not totally Marine Corps related, though. Um, and then the sort of third day, um, a third day that really meant a lot to me was on the second deployment, because um, I was really, you know, it's something that I work with through Silaf Report is, you know, really trying to have that human connection with people. And I think everything is about, you know, having that human connection um, with everything because if it's not i don't know if you're not if you're not if you're doing stuff and you don't have that human connection it's like what's the point <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't know in certain ways um but to me human connection is very important at least 
and um, there, there's this really cool day where um, because for me on my deployments, and this is why I, we were lacking that sort of human connection on that second deployment that we had on the first, where we really got to know these villagers and the AUP, and we really got to know a lot of Afghans and really just got invested and involved in their stories and their lives um, in many different ways. And, you know, some of them were bad. We had really bad relationships, and we had really good ones. Some of the Afghans we hated. We hated some of the police we worked with. We hated some of the villages. We hated their guts, right? But it's like humans. You hate some humans, and you love some humans. And there were other Afghans that we really loved, and we re and it was really painful, you know, learning that Loy Calais fell and stuff um, later on. But either way, um, my point, though, is on the second deployment, um, there was a – because uh, I was a quasi like tactical interpreter because I was able to speak enough Pashu to sort of run around, but not enough to be an actual interpreter. But there's an interpreter that came up to me back at Levenek, and he was like, hey, man, there was a guy, a farmer that came up to me. and was like, is there a guy named Whining in your unit? And he was like, Whining? Oh, you mean Vining, like Miles Vining, like the corporal. And the farmer was like, well, yeah, like he came up to me on a patrol like last week. And we had a whole conversation in Pashtu, and his Pashtu was really good. And um, the interpreter told me that, and I and that was one of the most touching moments of I don't know my career. In that, you know, this random Afghan farmer like came up to another Marine patrol and was like, "Yo, one of your guys spoke to me, and I had a conversation with him, and I understood everything he said." And that was just, I don't know, it was very beautiful in a sort of human connection way that's very Marine Corps related. Um, and and the, I don't know. So you, I don't know. You look at those three sort of moments, and one with Paul, another one with a random Afghan villager, and it's like, you know, throughout this, it's like, you know, I've meritoriously promoted twice. I've gotten certcoms. I also got kicked out of the sniper platoon, but that then kicked out of you know, kicked out of scout sniper uh, school. Like that's a whole separate thing. Um, so I've had my downs and I've had my ups in terms of Marine Corps career progression. But it's like you know, the, the certcoms and the meritorious promotions and we like. That sort of professional achievement it means less means way less to me than um, than that connection with Paul and then that connection with that random Afghan guy on that second deployment. It's like those mean so much to me, much more than anything than anything professional wise. So I don't know. So, and, uh, and was, oh, go ahead. No, you asked. You had thoughts on professional development. Um, I don't know if you wanted to go into that or if you wanted. I, dude, I think you, I think you hit on all of them actually. Um, I think a lot of what you're talking about uh, is what we were, you know, what we're looking for, and that is, you know, think of, keep your story going. Don't let yourself get bogged down in your best days or your worst, um, and, you know, seek that community. And a lot of times, you know, a, a very easy community to fall in on is an education and you know i feel like um you know and, and a gateway into education is through professional development you just like get out there uh and like with you like immerse yourself in the culture whether it's afghan culture whether it's the marine corps culture whether it's academic culture but just don't sit back and let your story end itself so yeah. i think I think there's a lot of takeaways um, for what we were talking about. Yeah, cross, you know, cross the empty quarter. <laughs> yeah, or yeah, <laughs> or be a Bedouin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, get with some, get with some modern day Bedouin to drive across the desert in their pickup truck. <laughs> That's the modern, 
when I was in the UAE, uh, the last Emirati Bedouin came in uh, from the desert. Uh, he finally wow. came in, and uh, it was like a huge deal. Like they uh, threw him a huge party. Everyone was like celebrating. Um, yeah. yeah. So that was the Bedouin uh, culture is so rich and deep. Um, so that's, that's so cool. You were able to witness that. Crap. Sort of tangentially, you know, I was in Dubai at the time. And so, you know, it was all over the news and it's all. And then obviously I was working with the Emiratis. Um, and so they were talking about his stuff. But yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. You, you know, like, gosh, like, that's that's one of the that's one of the things I love about like that's why I love this book so much by Thysiger, because he was so involved with the Bedouin, and the, the, his observations are so profound and so insane. And you know, it's like he's talking about because because the bet like what you're talking about, you know, the last Bedouins like came in from the desert kind of thing, and he loved the Bedouins so much. He loved their way of life. Everything was simple to them, you know, and. And he was like, you know, he talks about these observations he has about the Bedouin, and he talks about the Arabs, you know, living in living in Dubai and what the Bedouin became after he left because he lived until the 2000s. So he saw what happened to Saudi Arabia and what happened to Yemen after you know oil was sort of really mm -hmm. mainstream. He saw what these people became, um, and he used to refer to you know the Ar Arabs living in cities. He was like, those are gutter Arabs, like those are. Like, yeah and it's like he's referring to arabs like in cairo and in dubai and stuff it's like those are the gutter arabs the real arabs that i'm with are the bedouin who are like trekking across the desert with nothing and they can read they can you know talking about things like these people can read they they were they had these abilities they knew what like a camel what camel it was an individual camel in the entire desert they were able to pick out individual camels by the hoof prints and be like mm -hmm. oh this is like this is Abdullah's camel. I last saw him last year, you know, stuff like that. But you know, that whole culture is now just it's it's gone, right? That oral culture, the oral history, the Bedouin of Thysiger's time no longer exists. Nobody crosses the empty quarter on a camel anymore, right? right? So, right. but that's like I don't know. That's a whole tangential thing. I'm sure you you saw that and looked into. You know, you're a part of that whole Dubai thing and running around with Emiratis. Um, but yeah. Cool. Well, Miles, man, this has been so great. Um, and we'll get all these links uh, set up uh, in the show notes. And just thank you so much for taking your time. Um, and, uh, you know, if you want, I, I will try to maybe get you back on for another another interview, spend some more time with you. You got a lot that uh, I'd like to, to pick apart. If you yeah, – I, I would say, um, if yeah, if you want um... – but I think um, uh, Abby might might be interested as well. Um, okay. He's talking to her, and okay. she's yeah, Shran's widow because yeah. she's doing well. She's uh, she actually just got hired on with the VA, I think, and she got big suicide awareness advocate and stuff. Ooh, she's taking that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So she's okay. I think she would find it really honorable to talk about Shran's um, on on in whatever platform um, kind of thing. Okay. And I always I always extend the offer to her whenever I get asked to talk about stuff on here it's like i always ask her like would you, you want to come on or something like that so yeah that would be very cool yeah cool well vic this has been great and we're we're it is before 11 you're yeah. awesome um this has been so, so cool talking to you and uh thank you that you guys are starting this podcast best of luck on starting it up and this has been really cool
Yeah, yeah man, we'll be in touch, dude, for sure. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. All right. Have a Take good day, care. Man. Take care. All right. You too. Bye. Bye. And that was Miles Vining, author of Into Hellman with the Walking Dead. Vic, what'd you think? You interviewed him. Yeah, it was, you know, really fascinating individual. Um, I am just completely humbled by his level of commitment to, um, you know, Afghans, to uh, human rights, and to his uh, fellow brothers from One Nine. Um, his commitment to uh, Kevin Schron's family, uh, to his uh, the other Marines who are suffering through mental health issues and yeah, the guy has just got this massive heart and it's humbling to hear, um, how much love he has, uh, for those around him and his commitment. And yet he's so high energy and, and he's so much, he's so spirited. Um, yeah, I, I, he's wonderful. And, 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 uh, hopefully we can have him on again. Yeah, not to be too much of a millennial about it, but he's definitely a faith in humanity restored type of a guy. For sure, yeah. I mean, he's he's from a different era. Like he's this man of all seasons, uh, and to that extent, it's inspirational. All right, William, what did you think? Definitely, what stood out to me the most was the fact that we talk about the uh, the British explorer who uh, previously had served in like the British special forces, and how that in his biography, the the special forces part was so like a paragraph, and then. His entire book was was so much more to that, and the fact that you know, you don't have to necessarily define yourself by your military service. That you can, that's not the end. Like that's it's a great contribution uh, to society and to into to the country. But you can do so much more. You have so much more potential, and that you can that you can live up to. And that's probably some of the uh, the best advice I heard. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting that Miles, from a young age, wanted to go the enlisted route, coming from the. Uh, the, uh, foreign service employee, foreign service employee but there's parent. a you know there's a there's a there's a position in in the hierarchy where that puts you and i think from a very early age he was drawn to more of that being in the mud that 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 really tactile experience not just the academic or intellectual pursuits of of life but like full immersion uh, and again like totally is just it, it's so humbling to hear about him uh, and, and the, the breaking the mold. I mean, the guy is just changing the paradigm time and time again. He's got a little something for everybody, too, because I dug the part where he was talking about how The Walking Dead were the OG Walking Dead. That's right. And not the TV show or the comic book. <laughs> yeah, that's so. something I've had to unlearn since uh, working in the Marine Corps Association. It's like when people say Walking Dead, they're not talking about a dude with a cowboy hat and a python. It's like... Yeah, uh, they're talking about, yeah. they're <laughs> talking about Ke- uh, Kirkman's you know, graphic novel series, yeah. So, all right. So, transitioning... Oh, let's uh, plug real quick. The Silo Report... Uh, will be in our show notes. That is a uh, research and think tank situation. Uh, Into Hellman with the Walking Dead, the book that Miles wrote, and the uh, Free Burma Rangers. Um, you want to speak a little bit about them? Yeah, so uh, yeah, Free Burma Rangers um, is a uh, refugee relief organization that Miles works um, really extensively with. Um, but yeah, it just helps displaced persons uh, find safety. Um, and uh, yeah, so. Please support and contribute all these great organizations. Read the book, find the book, get the book. Um, it's great. I think it really helps sort of reaffirm 
uh, agency and you know sort of takes control of the narrative away from this stigma that unless you're a commanding general of some special forces task force or uh, a Medal of Honor winner, that uh, you're, those are the only stories that matter. Those are the only stories that should be on the bookshelves. And and I think Miles uh, really helps bring that back. That like everybody's story matters, and um, it's it really is. Um, it's something that we try to do here at the show, and I think Miles um, takes it that step further with actually having published a book yeah. <laughs> about it. So, yeah, for the from the Grunt's perspective, Warfare from the Grunt's perspective. All right, and with that, let's uh, introduce our episode in two weeks with Will Schick. Yeah, Will uh, is a journalist with um, uh, Street Sense Media and uh, with DC Line. Uh, he's here in the Beltway, and he works uh, almost exclusively on bringing awareness to people's who are people who are experiencing homelessness, and uh, bringing uh, advocacy for those who are f- who need it. And so he's a former Marine, a former Marine officer, intelligence officer. Uh, got his degree. He was with me at uh, American University uh, through the uh, MFA Creative Writing Program there, and is now doing great things to help people who need it. All right. So we'll shake in two weeks. This is Nick. That's Vic, and here's Will. And we will see you on the flip side. (laughs) All right, Vic, we're going to keep that in. (laughs)